This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Air Force veteran and member of the Ottawa tribe, DJ Vanis. Now, one thing that really struck me when I moved to the US was I would be told what amazing rich history Europe and England has compared to America. Yet in the English school system, I learned about Native American culture and how far back that went. So it was amazing to finally get someone who was not only a veteran, but well-versed in Native American history on the show. So we discuss a host of topics. From the incredible ratio of the U.S. military that is made up of Native American warriors dating back over a hundred years, DJ's own journey into the military, how we're finally refinding ancient wisdom, leadership, the concept of a warrior, masculinity, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you DJ Vanus. Enjoy.
Well, DJ, I want to f- say two things. Firstly, thank you for your patience because when we were supposed to record, my computer took a giant shit and you were very patient while I rebooted. Um, <laughs> it's actually three things. Secondly, thank you to Kevin Basic for connecting us. And thirdly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks so much, James. And no, that technical stuff, that's that's life, man. That's real life. (laughs) (laughs) So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am coming to you from downtown San Diego, California. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. I know you weren't born and bred in San Diego specifically. So tell me where you were born. Actually, I'm sorry. I I wanted to do even even further back than that. So before I even get to my usual, your origin story, let's go back a few generations. I know your roots are in the Ottawa tribe. When Mm -hmm. I was doing some research, um, you know, there's this coming from the UK, I get this statement a lot. Oh, it's. Yeah, Europe is amazing. You've got so much history. We don't have history here. And when I was a schoolboy, I learned about American history and it began with the Native American stories and then the settlers, et cetera, et cetera. So I disagree. There is a lot of <laughs> a lot of oh, yeah. Yeah, deep-rooted history for a long, long time in the US. So through your actual family lineage and the storytelling that happened in your tribe, talk to me about some of the stories of when you know, when the settlers came the uh, the um, Indian Removal Act and what uh, impact that had, and then kind of some of the the service stories as far as your ancestors joining the the military themselves. Sure. Okay. Well, that's a couple different things there. Well, first of all, I mean, our history goes back. We have a deep, <clears throat> rich history. Um, you know, we've been there for over ten thousand years. So that's a uh, you know a little bit longer than a minute. But a lot of times in history, especially what's taught in school, that whole chapter, that whole section gets reduced to the last 100 years, 150 years, uh, which is a travesty because we had thriving, successful, creative, innovative civilizations way before Europeans ever got here. Um, So my family roots go deep and they've been there for a long time. Um, Indian Removal Act and all, all the different policies that Congress came up with to decimate our culture, <clears throat> jam us into assimilation, strip us of our language, our agency, you know, just our our feeling of who we were as a people or our, our identity really uh, has just been a mess. It continues to be. I mean, there's still huge challenges, huge battles going on daily um, in the courts, you know, with treaty rights, hunting and fishing rights, land and water use. You know, these are all things that were you know, guaranteed, quote unquote, you know, through treaties. And, you know, we always honored our side of the treaty, but the treaty that was made by the government never was. And so it it continues to be a mess. And, you know, our land base is greatly reduced. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things that we're, we're now not fighting <clears throat> to preserve what we have. We're fighting to preserve who we are as a people. And a big part of that is the ide- our identity, our language, our customs, our history, um, you know, all the things that make us uh, uniquely us. And so, and that continues. And there's a lot of people out there who are doing amazing work in that regard that I consider uh, lucky to be friends of, you know, I consider myself lucky to be their friend. And um, so, and, and then as far as the military service goes, you know, people always ask that question, you know, when I was part of the PBS documentary, The Warrior Tradition, that was a big question that came up over and over again is after everything that, you know, that happened to your 
tribal communities in this country, why on earth would you have the highest service rates for any ethnic group in the country? And, we, and we've had that for over 100 years. And the answer is pretty simple. It's it, The answer is this is still our home. This always has been our home. And we've always seen it as worth defending, worth protecting, and worth sacrificing for. The other thing is this is also the way that we we honor that warrior tradition, which all of our tribes, you know, had, or most of our tribes had a warrior society. And this is the way that we can honor that um, today is by, by serving this country in uniform. Uh, it's definitely not the only way that you can be a warrior. You know, I talk about that a lot in my, my, my latest book, The Warrior Within, as well as all, this, all the things that I, you know, share from my speaking and trainings is, you know, that role is evergreen. It's timeless. It transcends race, age, stage of life. Um, that warrior tradition in our tribe is very different than the Hollywood image we see. You know, when we say the word warrior, we see that big screen character, that big sweaty chiseled figure that, you know, is shooting bazookas and knocking down buildings and shoots occasional, you know, surly looks at the camera, you know, and it's not that role. Uh, you know, my tribe, we call a warrior Ogichida, and that term has very little to do with those, I, you know, those stereotypical images. It's not about being the toughest kid in the neighborhood. It's not, uh, it doesn't require a uniform or combat boots. It's, it's basically somebody who dedicates their life to developing what, you know, their creator given talent and ability so that they could be a benefit or an asset to the tribe that they served. And today, whether that tribe is your family, your, your community, your company, your agency, branch of military, whatever it may be, um, we all have a tribe to serve. And that burning question that should be on a warrior's mind every day is what am I doing today to develop myself to be, to create a deeper impact with those that I serve? You know, a warrior is somebody who led by example, not by perfect example. We all make mistakes. We stumble. Sometimes those are the best things we ever learn in leadership, but by an example that's worthy of respect and followership. Um, a warrior asks not what can I get, but what can I do for someone else? Um, it's somebody who's willing to fight for something bigger than their own personal welfare. And at the end of the day, it's somebody who's committed uh, to a life of service. Absolutely. The documentary that you referred to, I thought was, was amazing. Um, and more often than not, a lot of the speakers in that show had multiple lineages of service in the US military. And what I learned, mm -hmm. I learned a lot from that documentary. One was after serving, then that's how immigration came in. So you had Native Americans fighting for the U.S. that weren't American, which is <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the crazy part. Irony. My my great great uncle Moose, um, his, his name was Frank LaHaye, and he he was a Marine in World War One. So nineteen seventeen eighteen was our involvement. You know, Native Americans didn't get U.S. citizenship until nineteen twenty four. You know, so I mean, when you think about <clears throat> that kind of arrangement it's it's pretty surreal you know and, and he was a combat you know he's a decorated combat veteran and and um had you know combat action and had you know suffered ptsd when he came home uh got hit by a german wa water-cooled machine gun almost got cut in half i have no idea how he survived my dad would tell stories of how you know his uncle moose would lift his shirt up and show him his four belly buttons it was pretty pretty amazing but um no and that was part of you know, after the the great Indian wars and all the displacement happened, this was a way for our native men in particular to reprove themselves because once the wars were over, they were stripped of their weapons, their land, 
and uh, you know it just went into this kind of dark depressive time and and native women at that point i mean they they stepped up to the plate and were really the backbone of you know survival for for our people and still are today i mean our our native women are strong and you know community leaders in every sense of the word but this was a way for our men to to have a renewed sense of identity and a renewed sense of pride in who they were and what they could do um world war 1 was kind of an opening to that so i mean that in itself i think that there's there's so much ignorance when it comes to our understanding of native american culture you know and like i said coming from the uk and learning almost more from british history books than i've learned since i've lived here in the us you know i mean obviously i've sought out um information yeah. but it's not you know what they're learning and ironically my son's now 15 he's part cherokee i think it's about four, probably four generations back mm -hmm. um I, when he was little, I told this story a couple of times, he was sick and he went to the pediatrician, but the usual doctor wasn't there and there was an old gentleman. And my wife called me in tears. She said, uh, and this, my son was probably a year and a half old by this point. She's like, the doctor um, says he's got Down syndrome. And I'm like, the fuck do you mean he's got Down <laughs> he's, he's one and a half. I think we pretty much yeah. know by now. And he got, I said, tell him that tie is part Cherokee. And, you know, there's the, the Mongoloid element. There's the Mongol, um, you know, heritage. And that's where the term Mongoloid comes from is the people with Down syndrome have similar facial anatomy to some of the you know, Native American and, and Mongol before that. And this guy wouldn't listen. He's like, nope, this is, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, all right, get my child, get the fuck out, get yeah. out of that office. But that was, again, this ignorance. Like, not only did there's no acceptance of understanding the very native tribes that come from the country, this guy has been a doctor his whole life, but to not even understand the lineage and how that pertains to a child and you're looking at a child, I mean, that that really was a real kind of aha moment for me of of the ignorance in some of the people in this country at that point. It, it never ceases to amaze me how how much ignorance there is with Native American history in this country. And, and it blows me away, too, that the time that I've spent in Europe <clears throat> and I'm an Anglophile. I'd, I'd love English history and visiting England every time I have. But also through the, you know, the main, uh, you know, European continent. I'm amazed at how much Europeans know about, you know, American, you know, Native American history versus people who live here in the country. And that always kind of boggles my mind, but, you know, there's over 575 federally recognized tribes in this country. You know, I mean, that speak a separate 200 languages, you know, there's diversity within diversity, but it's, it, I, I just remember, you know, even in high school, I think we spent, and I went to high school in Mississippi. I think we spent in civics class. I think we spent a whole half of one class on native history in the state, you know, and it just, it, it kind of blows me away because that's the thing is when we sweep these things under the rug and we don't understand the history, we keep shoving it under the rug and saying, well, you know, that happened in the past. It's like, well, no, we've never actually taught the past. We've never taught what actually happened in, in a real and significant way. And until we start doing that, we're going to have these open wounds, you know, that, like I said, they continue to, to this day. Um, but, you know, when we start to explore and learn what actually happened, there's a more empathetic view, um, a little bit more compassion, a little bit more understanding uh, as to, you know, where people can understand why we're on, why we had reservations, why we have used gaming as an economic engine, uh, why every time we go to the courts to fight for a, a treaty right to be upheld or 
the the promise of education for our youth or free medical care. Uh, none, of, none of that was free. I mean, we gave up millions and millions of acres of land base and water right usage and all these different things, including that was part of our treaty too, that we would serve in the military to defend this country. You know, the, these are things that we've upheld, but what I'm saying is we sacrifice so much to get those things now that we still are being criticized for, for uh, embracing, you know, like as far as education, healthcare, you know, people, people think, Oh, they, you know, tribes have it so easy. They've got all these advantages <laughs> that right there shows big ignorance. What, what was sacrificed to get that um, as a, a resource was massive. Um, so that's, it, I guess it's just, you know, having the curiosity of our nation's first people and, and, you know, kind of learning uh, what the experience was really like and what the real history was like. Well, I want to go back to turn of the century in a minute, but before we do, while you're on that topic, I think that's the two extremes that I've heard. And I, I'll ask you a, um, a story. I mean, a question a little bit later about war, and it's, it's kind of like the same thing. We get these two polarizing views, and then the truth is in the middle. But when it comes to Native Americans in modern culture, I hear one of two things. Either they're so lucky, they get all this money <laughs> given to them, yeah, handed oh to boy. them. Yeah. And yeah. Or, or you hear the other side, which I think is more of an eyewitness account, but it's certainly the glass half empty view of the poverty, the addiction, some of that that we're seeing in some mm -hmm. of the reservations as well. So yeah. talk to me about, um, you know, those two um, perspectives. And then, you know, what is... What are you seeing as far? I don't know when you say the term Native American, you're talking about, as you said, 575 tribes all over the country. Mm -hmm. But you know, what are what are some of the myths that you hear over and over again regarding the cultures, and what are some of the truths that people are not understanding? Oh boy! Uh, well, I'll take the first one that you've mentioned. That you know, kind of piggybacking on what we said, everything is you know, we get all these advantages, we get this free stuff. It's like. Oh my gosh, that is that is so looking at the tip of the iceberg on you know what was required to get that quote unquote free stuff. None of it was free. It was made with great sacrifice to to get uh, the opportunities to get educated, to get job training, to get you know the ability to to have gaming you know in our reservations. That was a loophole that was found in the early '90s, and tribes have used it to build an economic engine. And nobody cared before gaming about tribes. Nobody cared about the poverty, you know, lack of housing, lack of employment, anything else. Uh, so tribes creatively found a way to develop an economic engine. Now everybody wants a part of that too. And so it's just, you know, there's no escape in it. You know, it's like, it's one of the other things that, you know, tribes get put on this land that was, you know, unfarmable, you know, you couldn't plan anything on it. So it was rocky, craggy, well, they're finding now underneath that ground are minerals, are natural gas, and now everybody wants that too. So it's like there's no getting out of, you know, there's a constant attack on, you know, what is the meager things that are even left. Um, but there is a lot of poverty. There is a lot of trauma, uh, which tr triggers dysfunction. I mean, it, Anton Troyer, uh, who is an author and, and a teacher in, in Minnesota, and uh great guy. And he had a quote that he said, basically, you know, why people keep asking, you know, why don't native communities get it together? And he said, the equivalent is, is basically somebody has been bashing you in the head for 150 years with a hammer. And then they stop bashing you in the head. And then they say, go out and be fruitful. 
It's like there is so much dislocation, broken homes, broken cycles, suicides, you know, and and of course, alcohol and drugs are part of that because a lot of it came from self-numbing. You know, when you're so miserable that everything that you know is your lifestyle, your identity got stripped away and it was illegal to practice ceremonies. It was illegal to, to speak your language. I mean, kids get shipped to boarding school against their parents' will. And then when they speak their traditional language, they get beat. Um, they get abused or or killed. I mean, that boarding school up in Canada that they just found 750 bodies of little kids that died there during the time. I mean, those are families that their child was taken away and they never saw them again. And that's the history. That's the dark side of Native history in this country that, like I said, until people understand what happened, they're always going to look at it as, why can't you get it together? Why do you guys have so much of, you know, so many of these social problems, uh, so many of these economic problems, why can't you get it together? Until they know this story, uh, it seems like a valid question until you know anything about the history of Native people in this country. So there's still a lot of work to do. We have problems with hair on them. Um, you know, it's one of the things I, I have always taken a, a special um, joy in is is serving Native communities. I've worked with over 500 tribal nations in the last 25 years of my life, including my own. And, you know, my goal is always to to raise not only our expectations of who we are and what we can do, but also to build the capacity to actually get there one individual at a time. You know, that's that's where my sweet spot is. It's developing a stronger person from the inside out. Because we talk about tribal sovereignty, which is our tribe's ability to operate under their own terms, to make their own decisions as a group to be independent, you know, we have a government to government relationship with the federal government, which is very unique. And a lot of people don't understand that either. So, but tribal sovereignty doesn't have a chance of surviving if we can't get people to have individual sovereignty. If we're not building people strong from the inside up, from the ground or inside out and from the ground up, we don't have a chance to preserve tribal sovereignty, our language, our culture, our land base, our hunting and fishing rights. We need strong people who are capable uh, to continue that fight. What's interesting as well, because if you look at a lot of the minority communities, or I wouldn't say, that's the wrong way of putting it, the the impoverished communities, it's, it's irrelevant what your skin color is, it's the, the usually the poorer communities, there's that same exact mentality by a lot of people. You know, why don't you just get your act together? What you've got to do is wake up one day and choose to not be a gangbanger anymore, not be an addict. Right, or, right. It's just such a ridiculous thing coupled with the irony that those people then will you know go finish a bottle of scotch but it, you know whatever the the legal version of their addiction is right um and so there's this pain everywhere there's this pain from yeah. you know native american cultures that had their entire uh you know history and tradition stripped from them there's this pain from people that were enslaved and came over and generations later still find themselves in poverty and there's obviously pain in people and i just kind of had this aha moment recently there's pain in the politicians, there's pain in the heads of these corporations, because if you weren't hurting, you wouldn't be a complete shitbag and actually be doing these things. So well, even what's the in quote, that What's area, the quote, James? Hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. Right? Until you deal with your own stuff, you're going to keep dumping it out on the people around you. So it's a self-awareness thing, but you know that it's also you know, a, a compassion thing, you know, because when you deal with your own wounds you're more likely to look at other people's and have a little bit more compassion towards theirs, you know, but, you know, we have this kind of, I guess, this 
game going on where we try to suppress and hide as much crap as we can in our own personal lives and shove it down and just kind of, you know, button it up tight. And then we start to point fingers at everybody else who can't do that. And that's like, that's kind of a really not only dumb way to operate, but it's kind of heartless too. You know, it's uh and it's motivated by pain, you know, and, and until we start understanding that, you know, we are going to continue to make poor decisions when it comes to our fellow human beings. Yeah. Well, I mean, they say history is doomed to repeat itself. And I think that, you yeah. know, we, we look at um, evolution as technology. I disagree. I think the true human evolution is when we finally find the kindness and compassion that many of these holy books that people, you know, hold dear to themselves clearly outline, don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we exactly. still seem to yeah. miss that, yeah. that message. Yeah. In every great body of religion, it's, that's, the, that's the ongoing message. But yet we keep violating that. You know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's one of the things that was terrible that, you know, how many awful things were done to Native people in this country in the name of religion. Uh, I've always been a spiritual guy. I've not, you know, ever looked at myself as a religious person. Um, but, you know, going through our traditional ceremonies in, in our, our communities, um, going through vision quests and going through Sundance and and doing sweat lodges or inipis, which is a, you know, healing lodge. Um, you know, these are things that I, I've always felt connected to. But, you know, one of the things I've always been very proud about is, you know, Native people never fought over religion. That was one of the things that we respected each other in, in those beliefs and to each his own. But but basically, that you know, you melt down all the core components for all the great bodies of religion in, in the planet. And I'll look at even our own tribe's seven grandfather teachings. You know, it's the same things. It's the seven grandfather teachings are things like love, wisdom, bravery, respect, truth, honesty and humility and it's like that's the snapshot of a good life and all these different bodies of you know the, these big religions promote the same thing so hopefully one of these days we'll actually get that message and start using it yeah well i think this is this is what's beautiful about this medium now podcasts and documentaries and things like that where especially with this the filter has been removed like no one can say oh you and dj can't say this thing we're going to say this thing whether you like it or not and when you remove those these kind of ulterior motives these filters this just kind of censoring that we see and obviously it's so blatant now with the mainstream news <laughs> quote unquote yeah, news it's channels us, it's us or them right there's no in between there's no bridge building anymore it's us or them it's right or wrong it's black and white and we have 8 billion people on this planet now. And if we have that kind of posture, I don't think we're going to be here for much longer. You know, and, and people always wonder about the planet. You know, I talk about global warming and climate change and all these things. And by the way, our, our travel communities have been saying this for decades, especially up in Alaska. And now people are like, oh, you were right. that Things are changing. Um, I don't worry about this planet surviving. I worry about us surviving. Planet's going to be fine. Um but, you know, we're making ourselves such a burden in the way that we operate, you know, not just on our resources, but with each other, that we, we've we got to have some type of breakthrough at some point to get back to common ground and say we have so much more alike than different. But the story that we tell ourselves about those differences makes all the, you know, makes all the difference, you know, because when we start telling a story that we're this way and they're so different, there's no way we could ever talk to them or work with them is just, wow, it's uh, asinine. I, I just, it, it's mind boggling to me that we have that kind of casual attitude when there's more and more people on this planet. I don't know where we're going to go with that type of dead end uh, mentality. 
Well, I think the awakening that we need is to realize when you look at history, only a few people really benefited from all the tyranny that happened. If you look at slavery, I actually kind of did a little digging into when slavery was at its peak in the UK. Mm -hmm. the, the British people, that was one of the deepest levels of poverty in England in our history. So obviously the average English person wasn't making a lot of money. And I'm sure most people in the UK say, hey, we're going to enslave humans so you can, you know, buy nicer clothes. You in? They're going to be like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm out on that. Thanks for, that sounds like a terrible idea, you know, yeah. but then you look at, you know, slavery, you look at the, the US, you know, do you think the average blacksmith in the middle of the Midwest was really wanting to enslave human beings? No. But plantation owners were making a shitload of money. You know, the traders That's in it. the UK were making a shitload of money. So when we actually realize, and it's now, I mean, the, you know, the last two presidents, same thing. You've got this country divided. We just had a pandemic that should have unified us and the polar opposite happened. We straddled both, both sides. And, you know, who's benefiting from this? They're looking over the castle wall, watching us beat the shit out of each other and laughing. Because if we're fighting each other, what are we not paying attention to? The Them, tyranny in the castle doing, their itself. Behavior, you got it. You got it. Yeah. And that's a, it, it's a, it's a disappointing thing. I hope more people take the blinders off to, to what's actually happen, happening with that dynamic. But yeah, the pandemic was one of those moments that we could have been a lot more unified, uh, but it became, you know, it was a, it was a medical situation that became highly political and continues to be. And it just, you know, served to further divide groups, you know, and it's just, it's so extreme now. It, it's, it's hard to kind of back off of the narrative and people are so interested in preserving the narrative. They don't want to change any of their behavior uh, because it would discount the stuff that they've been spewing for years uh, on whichever side you're going to take. It's like, we don't make compromises by staying entrenched and throwing grenades into the other person's bunker. You know, we make, we open up communication by actually having dialogue and having discussions, you know, based on fact, based on science, based on things that we can get behind as a group, as a people. And that's not going to happen. There's always going to be differences, but man, if that's all we're looking at, where do you go from there? Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of throwing grenades, that's a terrible kind of segue for me to get back onto your <laughs> lifeline. So I know that your dad was was in the military. I know your mother was a mm -hmm. nurse. So let's talk about your your early life. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little yep. about your family dynamic. Sure. Um, I was born in Muskegon, Michigan, uh, while my dad was in basic training. Uh, my parents had me, you know, when they were kids in, in poverty. And so a uh, really rough start for them. And... When I was born, uh, yeah, my dad was in basic training. I grew up in the military. Um, he was enlisted for 21 years. My mom was, you know, a nurse, went back to school when I was about 10 years old. So she put off that, that dream until, you know, my sister and I were a little bit older and then went back to school for that. But I grew up with a really strong work ethic, uh, in my family. I got to watch my parents in action. You know, um, that's why I'm such a fan of, people who are in service to others because I grew up in a household where that was a, a primary value. And so that was uh, something that, you know, spurred me to do the work that I do. You know, I, I ended up joining the military um, right out of high school. I, I applied to college. I, I ate different universities and I got my number one pick, which was the uh, U S air force Academy. 
And so I went there and it's a, you know, one of our military institutions and graduated from there and became a second lieutenant, you know, started my career. But growing up, you know, my family was, was very, very close. Um, because wherever you went, that's, you know, that was your core unit, you know? So we grew up in North Dakota, South Dakota, Mississippi, and, um, yeah, I have one sibling and, but I, I grew up with a, the idea that I could do whatever I put my mind to, you know, and we didn't have any track record of that necessarily in my family, but it was something, again, the narrative is powerful, right? The stories that we tell ourselves are powerful. And I don't remember when it actually kicked in, you know, what, what year, what month, but at some point I actually started to believe that. And I really started pushing myself uh, to develop as I was growing up as a kid. And, you know, I knew one of the ways that I was going to be able to transform my life into what I hoped it would be was going to be through academics. And so I really, you know, uh, pushed hard in, in that arena. Um, I was also a licensed pilot in high school. That's kind of a weird thing, you know, for a kid. I didn't, I, I didn't have all, all the money that I could have used to buy a car uh, went into getting a pilot's license. But what a great experience that was. I mean, an ultimate feeling of freedom when you're 16 years old and you could check an airplane out and go flying by yourself. And land at the high school with your bag on your back. <laughs> oh, that would have oh, been cool. That would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have been a mic drop moment. But no, I, I t- was able to take my friends up. You know, once I got my license when I was 17, I was able to take friends up on the weekends, which I did quite a bit because I asked, I asked them to pay for gas and, you know, I'd rent the plane. And so I got, you know, more flight hours in and didn't have to pay for it, which was nice. But that was my goal. You know, when I went to the Air Force Academy, I wanted to be a pilot. And I got there and it was the second week of basic training and that dream got shattered because they did a follow-up eye exam and they basically said, you're never going to fly. You're not even waverable. And so I was just heartbroken. And I sat in the stairwell with my shaved head and uh, cried for like an hour and a half. And um, and I started to take an assessment. You know, I, I was like, well, what do I do? Do I quit? Do I leave? And I'm like, well, I've already been here for a couple of weeks. I'm already making really good friends. Um, you know, I'm on a full ride scholarship, you know, to be here at the Air Force Academy. You know, let me see. Let me see how this plays out. Plus, I don't want to go home yet because I've got a shaved head and I look like a squirrel monkey. And uh, so I'll <laughs> at least wait till my hair grows out. And four years later, you know, I'm throwing up my cap and the Thunderbirds are screaming over. Um, and I graduated. So it was a great place to be from. I wanted to quit a million times. Um, but, you know, one of the things that inspired me was when my mom was going through nursing school, I remember waking up as a as a kid in the middle of the night to, you know, get some water, go to the bathroom. And I would see the light under the door. It's like 2.30 in the morning, the light under, under my mom and dad's door. My mom's still studying. And I remember that um, because when I was at the academy and I felt like thrown in the towel, that's what kept coming back to me as a memory is stick it out keep going. Just, you know, you don't have to make it. You just, I I learned this strategy at the Academy. When things are hard, take it a week at a time. When it gets really hard, take it a day at a time. And when it really sucks, take it one hour at a time. And if you do that, you can get through damn near anything. And so that was uh, something that, that really helped keep me on the path, you know, when I was there, because it's hard, it's a tough place to be from, but I'm glad I went through. And what was it that disqualified you from actually flying? My eyes, my eyes were bad. So I, I, I wore glasses in high school or contacts, um, but my eyes, by the time I got my initial physical to go to the academy, you know, and then a year 
plus later when I'm actually going through basic training, my eyes had dropped even lower. And um, so it was no longer in the realm of reality for me to do that. And the, the irony is though, now they'll not only allow you to get LASIK surgery to correct your vision, they'll pay for it. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, but things work out for a reason. Um, because if I would have become a pilot, I probably would have stayed in my entire career. Um, and I, you know, wouldn't be doing what I, what I'm doing now. And I absolutely love what I'm doing now. I feel blessed to do this kind of work. See, the reason I asked when I was in school, I was told I was colorblind and I could never be a firefighter oh, or, yeah. or a pilot. And then yep. fast forward a long time when I had a realization and challenged that stupid book, they were like, oh yeah, you're fine. <laughs> a oh, different wow. country. I came to America yeah. to do it, but yeah, it was the same thing. Back yeah. then you just believed everyone blindly and then you move on a little bit and you're like, well, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. And they're like, oh, actually, you're right. Can you tell me what color these things are? Yeah, okay, you're good. So, yeah. you know, but I wasn't meant to be a British firefighter. I was obviously meant to come to the, the US and get on the journey that I did as well. So it's interesting. Things work out, even if we don't, you know, even if we don't know it at the time, when you look back over your shoulder, you go, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Absolutely. So. Well, just kind of leading up to this point, how much immersion had you had in your Native American culture growing up in the US within your family yourself? Um, it was limited growing up, uh, because of the situation that I grew up in, you know, being in a, in a military family, you know, home is where they sent us. And so my home community in Michigan, you know, we obviously go back and visit and, you know, my grandma taught our traditional language. I have cousins and relatives who've been on our tribal council, you know, for years. So I, I knew my history. I mean, I knew where I was from and who I was, but I didn't have a lot of interaction with that part of my life until later and until like late teen years. And then I started to, you know, really understand and get a, a lot more involved in that. So going to traditional ceremony, you know, working with elders, you know, learning more about travel history and, and not just my own, but I've, like I said, I've been gifted to, to work with a lot of tribes and get that wide view of native native culture in general and um which has been a real blessing you know i've got a lot of surrogate grandpas and grandmas uh across indian country that still guide and encourage me and occasionally kick my rear end uh even today so i, I love that now did you find yourself deployed to a combat zone during your time in the air force i didn't um i did spend time overseas i, I spent I, I had four separate trips to australia that were each several weeks in in duration uh, I worked in the space warfare arena, so I worked on a satellite network that was part of our our um, space defense uh, environment, and that was a real amazing experience. Uh, it was in the middle of the outback. It was in Woomera, uh, right in the center of the the continent, and uh, it looked like Mars. You know, like red sand and scrubby trees and kangaroos everywhere and poisonous snakes. It was a it was a really cool experience. But no, I did not. Uh, spend time in a combat zone. The, my transition time when I got out, um, I actually had my paperwork set to get out as a captain in the Air Force in October of 2001. Oh, really? And, yeah. And so when September happened, obviously everybody got locked down. Um, there was a, a stop loss, uh, so nobody could get out. And nobody really wanted to at that time. I mean, we didn't know what the future held and everybody who was in uniform for, for the most part wanted to stay. I mean, I, I was already building up a new career. 
I was burning up all my leave time speaking on the side. I was trying to, you know, make that transition and then everything got pulled to a, to a stop. But I ended up getting out the next year uh, in July of 2002 is when I finally separated from the Air Force. But um, yeah, I had great experiences, though. I, I really, you know, enjoyed the people I served with. I thought, you know, the mission that we had was was uh important and i the only reason why i left the military is because i found something i'd love to do more so well when you were in australia did you have any exposure to the aboriginal people i did yeah it was limited i mean because where we were in woomera the the nearest uh, aboriginal communities were north and west i'm trying to think of the distance i mean australia is a big country i mean that's a, people don't understand how how massive that land base is but yeah i had some uh interaction and down in adelaide uh went to remember going to a cultural center but it was it was limited um but yeah that was one of the things that fascinated me about you know i, I wish i would have had more time to to explore that more but uh the experience i did have le- has stayed with me so that was that was powerful because i was in australia i lived there for about three months in let me see 2000 um and we drove up to well we flew to Alice Springs and then drove to uh, Ayers Rock. Oh yeah. And I was saying, okay, great, I'm going to have a full immersion now in you know the Aboriginal people and their life. Mm-hmm. And and when I got there, there was no one, no right. Aboriginal people at all. And then you even had the option to pay to climb climb Ayers Rock, which is sacrilege in you know the Aboriginal. I guess it's their rite of passage, you know. So sacrilege, yeah. you just to you know, joyride out there. So we didn't, we walked around the outside, but I was kind of, you know, struck by the fact that if there was a place for anyone, including people from other countries to really learn about the aboriginals, that was the place to do it. And there was no one. And you you hear again of kind of pseudo reservations where a lot of them were living and again, impoverished and addiction and all these things too. So it was, it was a very sad um, reflection of how, that kind of segregation still existed whether it's you know hopefully it's a lot better these days this was 23 years ago now but you know it was a probably a a similar parallel to what we would have seen in in the u.s maybe you know 100 years ago yeah i i agree because i think we're definitely more uh further along in in the relations that you know this country has with it's indigenous people in Australia, but, um, it's, it's just tough because it's, it's hard to compare pains. You know, there's still, like I said, it's, there are a lot of issues in those communities, just like over here, but it's, it's what happens when a, a society or a part of society gets discarded, uh, and, and not just ignored, but actively tried to be, you know, they actively tried to eliminate, you know, our communities and that, that left a lot of damage, you know, it, it still lingers to this day. And that's, that's the thing is it's, it's generational now, you know, and when you grow up in an unhealthy environment, that's what gets handed down until that cycle is broken uh, by either, you know, taking different choices, going through therapy and counseling, whatever it may be to heal those wounds um, until they are healed. They just get repeated. So you talked about starting to speak as you were getting ready to transition out. Talk mm-hmm. to me about, you know, when you really started becoming um, invested in your culture and then how you started realizing that you could actually be a voice for not only your tribe, but all the tribes. Yeah, that started actually during the time I was at the Air Force Academy. 
Um, I started, uh, you know, having a, a deeper understanding of, I guess, kind of the context of where, well, how do I want to put this? I started the self-exploration process while I was at the academy and started, you know, asking more questions from back home from my relatives, started, you know, having a better understanding of, of who I was and then started having kind of a, started asking a question of what do I want to do with that? How do I want to, how do I want to bring that out into the world? And I started getting involved with my culture. I started going to ceremonies. I started um, a chapter at the Air Force Academy, uh, a chapter of the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. After I graduated, I started a chapter there and, you know, just started to be more involved in that side. And I had some good mentors. I had some good spiritual leaders that kind of took me under their wing during that time as well. And I started realizing that even during the time at the academy, there, there was only a handful of us who were native. And that's a federal institution with 4,400 people on a full ride scholarship. And I went up to basically kind of complain a little bit to the what was called the minority enrollment office at that point. Uh, now it's the office of diversity. But I went up there and, you know, stated that that fact. And I said, you know, we have tribal communities all over this country. And we, when we only have a handful of people who are native here, that's, that seems unacceptable, you know, and basically I got hired to work in that office for a year and um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, they worked me like a dog and I loved it. I was on the road for three and a half weeks out of every month for a year and tra traveling to all these tribal communities and promoting, you know, not only the the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy, but also Air Force ROTC, basically the pathways to become an officer in the Air Force. And But I also started talking about just the power of education, the power of healthy choices, surrounding yourself with the right people, personal success, uh, honoring your, your family, your culture, your background by, you know, kicking ass in the world today, you know, with your assets and your your talents. And that message started to kind of take on a life of its own. And that's what led me to do what I do now is I worked there for a year and I really started understanding that um, these are ideas that are, are needed. Um, I wish I would have had them when I was younger, you know, and I started kind of promoting this more and more. And next thing I know, it was kind of, I was being requested once I stopped doing that, I, I was still being requested to go to conferences and talk about, you know, my journey, what led me there and share some of the ideas I had. And it's just kind of grown from there. So, and that led to the first book, the second book, the third book, um, you know, the PBS documentary that I was featured in. And then the PBS documentary that I, that I hosted, uh, it's, it's led to some amazing opportunities, but like I said, I love getting to do what I do for a living. That is a topic that has come up a lot when you are in the, the uniform professions, the term diversity gets thrown around and sadly there'll be a realization, oh, we don't have enough of person X, Y, and Z. And in poor leadership, they're like, all right, go get me 100 of this type of person and bring them here. And then we can check the box. That doesn't mean that the 100 are any good. And so then yeah. that creates more friction within that organization. Some will be rock stars. Some will be terrible. You know. So what I have seen, I've got a friend here, Chris Hickman, who started a, a firefighter mentorship program here. And they have a, a centrally located um, training at one of the fire stations downtown. 
as long as you can get to that fire station, they'll provide the equipment, the training. There's um, some scholarships available for Fire Academy. There's certainly jobs waiting on the other end of Fire Academy because we're so short-staffed in the fire service at the moment. So what they do is they remove the barrier to entry to these underserved communities and mm-hmm. invite them to rise to the challenge of being a good firefighter or, or maybe figure out they don't want to be a firefighter. Right. And that, to me, seems to be the answer to the quote-unquote diversity issue. You don't just scoop up a bunch of people based on orientation, gender, you know, skin color, whatever it yeah. is. But you go into those communities, as, as you said, you empower them but and you invite them to rise to the bar. But if they don't, then they're still not going to be that thing that you're trying to do. But you find the ones who are actually great candidates and you bring them back in. That's key. Uh, it's really key. And especially how we did it at the Air Force Academy, we couldn't just grab anybody. You know, the, coming into the academy and surviving the academy, it, it's it's highly competitive to get in. And then you have to work your rear end off to get through. So we couldn't grab anybody that wasn't qualified. You know, it was, uh, you know, we had at that time, we had 18,000 people a year apply for, what was it? 1400 slots, you know? So we're talking very, very competitive. And so when we went out to these tribal communities, we were looking for those diamonds in the rough, you know, ones that came from tribal communities, reservation, you know, or, or on the border of reservations, but that, you know, we have tribal communities all over and there are superstar kids, you know, that are, that are coming up, coming up in those environments. And that's what we were looking for. Um, what we always tried to do in the air force was, uh, trying to, we tried to reflect, um, the population of the country that we serve. And so that was always a hard thing to do in the officer court, like enlisted the, the, we had that pretty, I mean, that tracked pretty well, uh, as far as, you know, different populations, but with our officer court, it was very small. And so that's what we were trying to to build up, because especially as we're not only you know serving this country, and we want to reflect the population that we serve, but also going overseas, going to different cultures, different you know countries, is being able to have different angles, perspectives, backgrounds, um, cultures that are represented is critically important. You know, it's part of that you know building community or connection. Uh, building trust. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but there there was a lot of reasons, you know, that, com- you know, that motivated us to do this, but that was what we kept our sights on. We broke records, you know, when I was there, it was really cool. I had a great team of lieutenants, a, a new batch every year. And uh, we, we did some amazing things together and they had some great ideas. It wasn't, weren't my ideas. It was theirs, but what we instituted uh, allowed us to do some amazing things as far as improving you know, diversity at the academy during the time we were there. Now, the transition out of the military is some sometimes of a, a huge struggle for the military first responders. A lot of people, you know, athletes that have identified as that thing for a long time, that was their tribe, that was their purpose, and then they're on the other end. Their ID doesn't work and, you know, they're yeah. alone at home. <laughs> Firstly, what was your transition out? Was it you'd already kind of pulled the trigger on deciding when you want to get out. It was prolonged a bit, but you had this talking um, in profession that you were going into. Was yours jarring? And if not, um, you know, if it wasn't, please elaborate. If not, you know, what were you seeing on some of your fellow um, veterans as they came out? It's jarring for everybody in a different way. Uh, I thought I was prepared. Um, I've had, I've had some friends that really struggled because it was, uh, you know, they, the longer that you stay in, it seems like the, the harder that transition is because it becomes so tied to your identity of this is who I am. This is what I do. 
but you know, I was in for almost 10 years, you know, I mean, 14 years in uniform for the Academy, almost 10 active duty, but I thought I was prepared to make that transition. And man, I tell you, it felt like falling off the monkey bars on the playground and landing on your head, you know, that kind of dazed, you know, like what the hell just happened kind of moment. Um, and it was scary because you go from being in the, in the military is a stable life, you know, as far as benefits and medical care and those types and expectations. I mean, all those things were in place. Plus I happened to, to work with great people that I knew had my back and I had theirs. So there was this camaraderie. And so you, you separate out and you're kind of on your own. It's blue sky. You have to provide everything because when you don't retire from the military, you don't get any benefits. You get a handshake and thanks for your service. And now you're on your own. And so that part was pretty scary. I, I always think that a little bit of fear can be a great motivator, you know, in the short term, at least we don't want to use that as a primary fuel source for the long haul, because that can do damage and, you know, raise our anxiety in, in negative ways. But at least in the short term, it did help me get laser focus on what I was trying to create, how I was going to do it. Um, and that really just, you know, I put my head down and just started moving the ball forward. And that really helped during that time because there was a lot of fear. I mean, even turning in my paperwork to leave was scary. I mean, I, I was having night sweats for like two weeks before I turned in my paperwork to leave. And then, uh, and the transition was rough in the fact that, like I said, I was supposed to get out in October, 2001, but then September 11th happened. I stayed in for, you know, better part of an, another year. And I was basically doing, I found myself in this really weird position where I was basically doing two jobs, two full-time jobs, because I had already ramped up my, you know, uh, this brand new speaking business, but I was also, you know, an officer and, and a leader in the Air Force. And so it really, uh, I was burning my candle at both ends and in the middle, and I, I suffered for it. Um, I ended up getting the shingles. Uh, at 28 years old. And uh, that was pretty uh, awful experience, I got to tell you. And I had every classic sign of stress. I mean, I, man, I had a bottle a week habit at that point, Maalox, Pepto-Bismol, whatever I could get my hands on, Kaopectate. I was popping Rolades and Tums. I, I was agitated. I was getting headaches. Um, I was doing all those, you know, I, I had all these classic signs of stress, but I kept saying, I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later when things aren't as crazy, when things calm down, which is always a little lie we tell ourselves to keep going until the wheels fall off. And I woke up one morning with what I thought was a heat rash down the right side of my rib cage and to the top of my thigh. And each one of those spots started to burn like they had been touched with an open flame. And it was, it was shingles. I had it for six weeks. It was freaking awful. I would not wish that on my worst enemy. It was like fire under your skin. And, you know, the doctor I, I saw, you know, he'd been practicing medicine for 30 years. And he basically said, what the hell are you doing to yourself? You know, this is something you get later in life when your immunities aren't as strong, not something you should get at your stage of, of life. And so that got my attention, you know, to, to, and, and luckily, you know, once I got out, you know, I put all my, focus on, on building this new, you know, uh, career. And, you know, I still had a lot of contacts from before. And like I said, it, once I got that momentum going, it, it made a big difference in, in plowing forward and create, creating what I wanted to see. So but it wasn't easy. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound like it at all. Um, and this, I think this is a reoccurring theme. I think most people do struggle in some way, shape or form. There's some that, as you said, they've got kind of the foundation set and they transition from one tribe to another 
But it, I think the flawless or near flawless transitions are anomalies. Most people, it's very jarring. Especially with, you know, if you're in uniform, if you're a you know first responder or military, I mean, you that is your identity. I mean, down to the clothes you wear every day, you know, your your operating procedures, the people you're with, your mission, the the way that you handle conflicts or issues. I mean, there there's so much that goes into that culture. But yeah, those those cultures are strong. And when you're in them, you know, you you can feel I mean, there's there's strain there, too, but there's a security in that because, you know, it's expected and, you know, your part in it. But yeah, once you leave, it, it's it's very jarring because you go from knowing what to wear every day to having to pick that, you know, to, uh, you know, my commute change from, you know, getting in my car and, and driving onto base to 20 feet down the hall, you know? And so it was, there were things that, and, and it gets lonely too. So if you're not partnering up, that's what I would always say to people that are going to go through that transition is make sure you know your, your extended tribe, not just the one that was in that organization that you're leaving, but also other friends, other family, because you're going to need them. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a tough process, but you can, it can be an, you can build an on-ramp where you can bungee jump. You know, it's like the choice is up to us. I wish I would have worked harder to build the on-ramp, but um, but yeah, it was a, it, it was tough, but it's, you know, there's things that you can do to soften the, the landing a little bit. Uh, and that's one of them you know, make sure you surround yourself with good people and lean on them. So another topic I think that is very pertinent, um, I've had Sebastian Junger on a few times and obviously one of his most famous books is Tribe, which Tribes. I think is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal? Phenomenal. Um, let's make that my <laughs> he just word created then. a word, I like it. <laughs> the phenomenal <laughs> snowman. Uh, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he, he is. I love his stuff. Um, but, you know, the big... I think one of the biggest takeaways is the homecoming. And he references, you know, many of the Native American tribes. Obviously, he talks about Iroquois quite a lot. But the storytelling element, the ability to, you know, offload the things that you did for your tribe. And, and you know, we refer to the World War II generation as having a little bit more of that, even though I think a lot of us are now realizing how closed down that generation was and i would argue that might even be the origin story for a lot of the multi-generational trauma that we're seeing today but yeah. certainly the vietnam i mean the korean was a forgotten war vietnam was the you know almost spit in your face war you know and yep. then the last 20 years i think there was some semblance of uh you know acceptance again but right. talk to me about the parallels that you've seen in modern america versus what would be a homecoming ceremony and 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 you know offloading what one of the native american tribes did after they came back from war and what can we learn from some of that more ancient wisdom yeah there there are ceremonies that are still done today that that welcome tribal members back home from combat from being overseas from deployments which is really healthy because in those ceremonies you know people are allowed to release all that pain, all that toxicity of the trauma that they just went through. And there was a, a close, well, there was an acceptance of that reality and there was a closeness to it. They didn't try to shun it away or push it into, you know, suppress it. That What they did in ceremony is release it. And, and that's a much healthier approach than what happens in general society where, you know, these young men and women come back from, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq and they, you know, next day they're shopping at the mall. There's no ceremony. There's no on-ramp. And you talk about a jarring experience. I mean, I have friends who, you know, were in this category and it it's surreal. And there, there's no, 
there's no healing space, you know, to kind of dump that. So if you don't do that, what happens? You carry it. Of course you carry it. You know, if you can't offload that stuff, you just jam it into your spiritual, emotional backpack and keep sallying forth. And then it comes out later in ways that you don't want. And that's the problem with not healing that stuff and facing it and processing it is you just bottle it and then it can come out in explosive, toxic, negative, destructive ways down the road because, you know, it, and it doesn't show up right away. You know, it's a lot of these folks that come home, they're, they're just thrilled to be home, glad to be home and that, you know, and experience some really hard things, some traumatic things, and it, but it shows up later. And so that's one of the things that, you know, having these, these homecoming ceremonies, these homecoming traditions, these, you know, um, these processes that have been around for, you know, through millennia for tribes are, are healthy. They're, they're cathartic um, because they're all meant to release uh, people from those, from that darkness. So they can integrate back into the tribe as a healthy human being. That was the purpose. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something It made so much sense. Sebastian talked about the veterans town hall that he created in his town. And ironically, I did a whole presentation to our, I forget the name of the organization, but the Veterans Association here. Um, and they were like, well, that's a great idea. And then I never heard from them again. <laughs> so I guess, yeah. you know, it was kind of, you know, shelved and that was it. But then I realized, okay, well, this platform is my way of doing the Veterans Town Hall. There's, you know, been hundreds of veterans on here that have told their stories now. So I hope that's that's part of it. But I think... It's the same with the first responder profession. Ours is more acute because it's every 24 hours or 12 hours, you know, so I've I've had that, you know, you've just been holding a dead child a few hours before and now your neighbor is bitching you about your trash can and you want to fucking yeah. murder him. So, yep. Yep. you know, it's hard to separate that too. So we bury down these micro traumas. And again, you don't realize how each of these little, you know, small pieces that we're putting down, it wasn't nine months in, you know, Fallujah. It was 24 hours in Orange County, Florida. But each of those micro traumas adds up the same way as a deployment. It really does. What what have you found is most helpful in dealing with that? One of the things, and ironically, is actually came from a coach. And they were talking, like a strength and conditioning coach, they were talking about how exhausting it was personal training. And I get that. When you're totally engaged in an athlete, it does. You know, I, I, I coach still. And at the end, you're trying to herd cats sometimes and you're trying to stay focused. And so they were talking about wherever they worked, they would make sure that the coaches took like a 30-minute period to punctuate between when they were coaching and then when they were done. And okay. I thought that was a great idea. So I always had a long drive home. I always worked just over an hour from the station usually. So that was my way of kind of decompressing, I think, just you know, whether it was music or whatever. I had a deliberate hour, hour and 15 between what I just did when I hung my gear on the on the the rack and when I drove home. But I think that's a very, very important thing. If you live closer or if you don't even want to get in your car yet, sit around the dining room table and, you know, have a coffee and just offload for a bit. Walk around the station a few times, you know, just just do something because you you have to punctuate being the lifesaver who at any moment might have to you know, risk their life or, you know, watch someone die to immediately holding your child, hugging your wife. There's got to be a space. You can't just go from firefighter immediately into father when you're handed a screaming baby as well. So we have to play those roles. I mean, there's something that we love to do, but I think that punctuation, whether it's, you know, a few days, you know, to decompress after combat and, and, you know, 
as you said, storytelling and offloading and maybe some counseling or an hour. We can't take, you know, days between shifts. So I think just taking 30 minutes just to to kind of uh, deregulate your nervous system and go from rescuer back to parent, husband or whatever role you're going into. I love it. Yeah, it's it's basically giving ourselves some mental breathing room. You know, that's one of the things I, I've found to be so medicinal is having solitude and quiet, you know, and, and, and slowing down, you know, because when you do that, you're able to, and we, and we, again, a lot of our ceremonies in in our tribal cultures center around that, you know, isolation, quiet, solitude, because we know that our, our elders know that when you're in that space, you kind of let the dirt settle in your mud puddle. So you can see clearly again, because we're constantly stirring that stuff up. And especially if you're in a high tempo job where you're exposed to trauma or things that are, you know, dark and disturbing, you don't shut that off like a light switch. I mean, you've got to discharge that somehow, some way, or we just bottle it and suppress it. And then when, like I said, that it does come out later, um, it just finds us when we're already compromised and exhausted and then comes out in really negative, nasty ways, uh, even when we don't want it to. So that's a, a practice. I think that makes a lot of sense and exercise too. Uh, I have a lot of friends that, you know, talk to veterans in particular that, you know, they, they look at that as medicinal, you know, being able to get that energy out of their bodies, um, you know, cause our emotions, it's all connected. So when you're able to discharge that physically, it, it helps us deal with our emotions better too. But um, yeah, anything and everything that we can do to, to help keep ourselves regulated. But that break time I think is critical. You know, we, we need that. Let's our brain settle down and refocus. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the definition of a warrior. And this is actually something that I've talked about a huge amount because I think it contributes to why so many people, especially men, struggle with the compassion, the vulnerability, the, you know, the other side of the yin yang equation. But before we do, I absolutely adore Bruce Lee. And when I was young, I had his posters. I had a Wing Chun dummy. I mean, I had the whole works. I bought the full Bruce Lee kit. Um, and one of the most kind of eye-opening and nauseating stories of his life was he came up with the concept of kung fu and then hollywood said ah sorry you look too asian and david carradine got the point got the part and they put a little mascara in the corner of his eyes and now all of a sudden he's chinese yeah so talk to me about native american culture and how they feel about the way they were portrayed in earlier Hollywood because it seems like it would be, you know, absolutely <laughs> just maddening. Oh, it's awful. I mean, we're, we're the good news is we have stories now that are on TV and in movies that are high quality and they're native written, native acted, native produced, and it's exciting. We're like in this native renaissance where we're able to tell our story the way that we want to. And now that we're sharing that with the bigger population, the bigger population is loving it too. You know, you got shows like Reservation Dogs or Dark Winds or uh, Letter Kenny is a really funny one. There's a lot of native characters in that one. Um, and, and movies too that are that are coming out that are showing uh, even Yellowstone for crying out loud. That wasn't that's another one that you know there's native character or native actors in there. But it's coming from a contemporary view. And, and it's great to see that because, yeah, in early Hollywood, my gosh, you could there, there were no, you know, all the native characters were played by non-native people. And it was embarrassing. I mean, you look back at some of these movies, they're embarrassing. I mean, it's just like it's 
you can't watch them. They're unwatchable. I'm sorry. When you got people like Chuck Connors playing a playing Geronimo and you know, all the other different, you know, uh misalignments of of characters. But that's the way it was. I mean, it was you know, politics in Hollywood and there was racism uh, overt. <laughs> and, you know, luckily we've come a long way since then. And now, you know, we have incredible native artists, actors, producers, directors who are now telling our story the way that we want it to be told. And, and they're really, now that we're able to do that, they're, you know, our stories now are even more successful than, you know, the other ones from the past because uh, they have, the gravity they have our unique fingerprint you know involved and it's really cool to to watch that but yeah some of the things in the past were were pretty awful and you know i i even think of like a show i used to watch and then we stopped watching it once i realized because i watched it as a kid too but like the cartoon the disney cartoon peter pan you know that the way that they portray native people on that is just awful you know and i remember watching my daughters watch that i'm like uh you guys shouldn't be watching this anymore. It was just bad, but that's, you know, we were, we we're kind of portrayed as buffoons, you know, savages, non-intelligent, and, you know, and at best we were a sidekick, you know, like Tonto and the Lone Ranger. But now um, things have changed, thankfully, and they're going in the right direction. So it's exciting to see. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's you know, this whole culture of like tearing down statues because they're, they were, you know, slave owners or whatever i think you should leave them up there but you should change the plaque this is yeah this is what 1940s hollywood looked like let's leave it there so we can remember never to do that again you know this is we, we don't need to kind of like cancel this we need to look back and facepalm and be like what the fuck are we thinking well, about then? It's, it's teaching real history you know I, I mean that's really what it is is we've you know put glitter and sprinkled it over you know and the the raw truth it should be taught like i said and i, and I love this country you know, we're not perfect. We're far from it. We got a lot of problems, but this is my home. It always has been. Um, I served this country in the military and, but I, but I do think we need to teach history differently. We need to really let people know and stop trying to shove it under the rug. Cause what happens is you get this social unrest, every generation where people are just so pissed off and like, I don't want to take it anymore. And then the rest of society is in shock and in horror. And they lean back and go, God, what's wrong with these people? Well, if they learned, you know, had a better perspective on what that particular group has gone through, there's a little bit more of an understanding and maybe that wouldn't happen every generation like it's doing. But you keep suppressing, you know, what what actually happened and the reality of it. Um, and it's not to to denigrate anything, it's to teach the truth. You know, I mean, that's this country was built on the backs of slaves on Indian land. You know, it's like let's teach that and then move forward from there. But until we until we start doing that, we're going to keep having these these issues. They're just going to keep repeating because we're not dealing with them. Just like that cycle of generational trauma that we're talking about. If you don't do anything to break that cycle, you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Well, I think that I think where I've seen the pendulum swing so far the other way is this: all white people are racist. Everyone benefited from slavery. You know, and like I said, the middle ground is no matter what tragedy you look at, no matter what oppression or genocide, it was the few oppressing the masses, you know, and, and obviously lying to a lot of the masses, which goes back to where we are right now and the division of a country and how dangerous that is. But we have to acknowledge it because then we can all move forward. But if we just, you thing. got half yeah. of people that are like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't happen. The other half, like, you don't know what's being, what it's like being 
person X. It's like, well, you're born in 2020, you know, you're in this generation now. We have people of your color, religion, whatever, in government positions, and they're all on, on, on these sporting, you know, organizations. Like, it's not 1950s America right now. But until we acknowledge that, that did happen, you're going to get these two po- you know, these two poles again. Versus yeah, yeah. America is this beautiful, beautiful tapestry of races and cultures and religions. And if we acknowledge all the bad things that our ancestors did, try and undo some of the damage that we can having moved forward 100 years or 150 years or 200 years. But if we all we do is just get triggered and feel victimized by everything, then we're not going to move forward as a people. Because if you're looking at oh, all everyone in this race is a, a, to blame. Well, no, look at all the, the progressive movements. There are people of all colors and creeds that were fighting for this group or that group. So again, it's that pigeonholing that is stopping our progress. That's it. And a little understanding goes a long way. You know, no one person, is, is, you know, nobody's all of one thing, you know, and no group is all of one thing. It's, you know, having that understanding where you can find that common ground, but acknowledging the truth, acknowledging history, what actually happened makes sense. But a lot of times, you know, people, you know, do the, you know, cover their ears and la, 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 you know, because they don't want to hear something that's painful that they have to actually acknowledge that happened. So again, it just gets shoved into the corner, get over it. It's in the past. It's it, what a, what a disrespectful way to look at any group. You know, if, if you were talking to one of your best friends and they said, you know, this happened to me when I was 22, like, geez, you're 45, suck it up. You know, it's a, you wouldn't say that to somebody you cared about. And that's what I'm saying is a little understanding, a little compassion goes a long way. And you, you, we can't fix everything, but at least if we acknowledge things, um, I think that speaks volumes because that's a, a willingness to be respectful to the people that are in our society, especially if they don't look like us. Yeah. And I think an empty apology is pointless too. Like you have these, you know, government people like, oh, we'd like to apologize for the genocide or whatever. And, and what are we going to do about it? What are we going to, are we going to put that into the history books? Are we going to try and, you know, undo some of the damage or give back some land or, you know, what, what else is going to be done? But that's what I see too. It's like the person that was caught being a shitbag and then they do the public apology. That's, that's pointless. You don't mean it. Just don't even waste your fucking breath. Especially when it, it, the delivery counts for a lot, when you can see it's just so flat and monotone, and it's like, oh, this is a mandatory apology. Yeah, if it's not heartfelt, I mean, people can, I think, spot a fake a mile away. I mean, we're all pretty socially savvy, and we're built that way. And when you see that come across, it's just like, what's the point? You know, we. So yeah, I, I agree with you. All right, well, going back to Hollywood, there was a reason why I kind of went down that road in the first place. So, what I have seen in, I would say post-war is there has been a complete facade and mythology built around what a man is and i'll just choose men for a second obviously you know that's the the experience that i've had in my life so far um and so you take the kind of i always support john wayne you know john wayne never served mm-hmm. sound like he was from if depending on who you listen to was a bit of a shitbag too but he is like heralded as the manly man mm-hmm. and you look at the the, the band of brothers series and the real man of easy company oh, those man, are some of the series. most incredible warriors that we've had in you know in that particular group and the vulnerability and the pain that you see in these men's faces, that is the polar opposite of the way Hollywood portrayed masculinity through the John Wayne era all the way through to my childhood. Yeah. So 
talk to me about again you know the perception of masculinity or the perception of the warrior through hollywood so i mean like you said we're getting better now but older hollywood and then let's expand on actually what a, what a warrior should look like or what a warrior should be like yeah no a great question i mean this is definitely something that passionate about as well because i think we over romanticize that warrior role we even do it in our, our tribal communities at times where we think that warrior is that iconic person that's channeling lightning on top of a mountain doesn't need anything you know they don't deal with pain they don't deal with fear they don't make mistakes uh they don't need any help outside encouragement support they don't need to take care of themselves all they need is the next worthy challenge that's it which is all a bunch of bullshit you know it's like our our warriors and what made them special was the fact that they dealt with pain they dealt with fear they were outmatched outnumbered out technologyed and they still found a way to put themselves in between their people and the threat or the enemy um, and they did it at great cost uh, but these are you know when we talk about what that role means you know it takes courage to be vulnerable it takes courage to say i need help i need support you know our warriors never fought alone you know why because that's stupid you're only ever going to accomplish so much on your own. We didn't, it wasn't about lone wolfing. It was about working in community with other warriors uh, to, to get the job done. And that's one takeaway that I think is hugely important. I mean, we live in such an individual, individualistic society where it's all about me and what I can achieve. But when you really look at bringing out your best version of yourself, you're going to do that in community. You're going to do that within your tribe that you create or you allow yourself to be surrounded by and quality counts, you know, and when you're, when you do that, the best stuff that you have is going to come out and not only come out, but it's going to grow. And so I'm very particular with who I surround myself with. You know, I want to be with people who are uh, benevolent, who are servants, who are leaders, who are willing to step into uncomfortable situations, who are willing to keep growing, admit when that something isn't working. I want to be with that type of group because that's, what allows us to become better. We can't do that if we're stubborn, we're locked in. We don't admit we don't know everything and that we don't need help from somebody else. And so that's one of the things that I think is really important is to understand that that warrior role is not about us. It's about developing ourselves so we can be of impact to somebody else. And we can get in our own way in that process when we become too prideful or our ego gets in the way and we say things like, well, I don't need help. I'll just figure this out on my own. And you're, you know, basically bashing your head on a wall over and over again when the person next to you has a ladder, you know, there's some humility that needs to be incorporated in, in this process. And when we are able to do that, uh, and it's scary to do that, uh, but we become a better version of ourselves, you know, processing our emotions, sitting with those things uh, is tough, but, it doesn't make us weak to cry. It doesn't make us weak to ask for help. Um, in the end, those are the things that really make us stronger. You know, I, I wrote in my, in my last book about one of my ex-lieutenants, Alex White, who came from, uh, he went into uh, special forces in the army and saw a lot of combat action. And one of the things that he wrote about in the book was being in a culture where they were humiliated by humility which is I, that line just has never gone away. It's in the book, but it's, it, it basically came out of that interview that kind of blew me away because when you're in a culture like that, it locks you into place. It paints you into a corner 
where you can't reach out and ask for help. If you're struggling, if you need to unpack, if you need to, you know, kind of vent is it's basically saying, you know, suck it up, you know, just get through it and don't burden anybody with it. And that's a tough place to be because if you're really serious about that warrior role, we want to do this sustainably. We want to show up day in and day out to fight the good fight. We don't want to be strong and brave this week, this month, or for as long as we can until we fall apart. We want to do this sustainably. And the only way to do that is to not try to out hustle, outwork those emotions, but to process them, you know, to get through them so that we're not stuffing it into our backpack again. It also means that we're asking for help when we need it. We're asking for encouragement. Why is that so important? Well, number one, because we all struggle. And number two, if we want to lead by example, when we're with people in our life and they know that we're reaching out for help, what is it going to allow them to do? Have that same grace. They're going to be willing to do the same thing. You know, if we don't do that, you know, we're, we're basically just kind of running, you know, our own solo missions until we fall apart. You know, that's being a martyr. Uh, We don't need martyrs. We need warriors. We need people who can show up day in and day out, deliver their best, stay sane and balanced as they do, you know, taking care of themselves, getting the help when they need it, asking for outside answers when they need it uh, so that they can do this for the long haul. But yeah, it's invulnerability. That's all a bunch of BS. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, And if it does work, it's short term. And, uh, you know, if we want to do this for the long haul, we got to, make sure that we are open to what we need and seeking it out. Well, this is kind of one of the aha moments for me was what I realized is by buying into this facade of masculinity, this two-dimensional Rambo Terminator bullshit, you cling onto it to a point where when you have that transition out, like you said, you've lost your tribe, you've lost your identity, now what you know if if you're the firefighter that wears all the fire gear all the time or you're the the veteran that you know has the cap and the t-shirt and the stickers on your car you're clinging on to that you're forgetting the very part of you that put you into the position in the first place because i would argue in the yin yang yes the i think i got this right the yin i think is the the hard side i think it's the white um is what we need in that flow state someone's shooting at you we've got to go into a structure fire you know someone just wrecked a car and we've got to cut them out there's no time for rainbows and kittens at that point you know right but the rest of the time there is to process that and i think we forget that it was kindness and compassion that led us into service in the first place that led us to put the uniform on and yet we seem to forget to show that to ourselves so Understanding that kind of warrior poet rather than just warrior or the kind of the, the the caricature of a warrior, we forget that poetry side. I just had one of my guests, Meg Tucker, talking about the uh, the Viking culture and how that's been grabbed and hijacked recently by a lot of people. And again, it's like the you know stacking bodies bullshit. And she said, if you actually look at Viking culture, they were there was a very gentle side. You look at the samurai, there was tea ceremonies and art, calligraphy, and I mean all these things. So. I think that we've we've again devolved. That doesn't make a good movie. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> when you see samurai doing calligraphy and you know drinking tea, it's like, yeah, we want we want to see the the, the combat scenes. But it, it it's true. I mean, it, those those roles get hijacked. I mean, and I bought into it when I was a kid too. I mean, we grew up in a culture where, you know, I literally heard things like, "You're injured, you're crying, walk it off." You know, um, rub some dirt in it. That was one of one of my coaches in high school would say. Uh, you know, we, because we get bought into this idea or brought into this idea and we start to 
you know, make it our own, that that's what being, uh, well, not just a, a warrior, but being a man is all about is invulnerability, never show weakness. But I mean, the, the, the reality is you can be more of a badass servant and leader in this world when you're getting what you need for yourself, as far as, you know, being able to get outside support and help and be able to process your emotions. I mean, that's be able to cry it out, you know, at, at some time, because it's all offloading that crap so that you can keep moving forward and doing your best work. That's what it comes down to. Like I said, when we remember that warrior role is about serving others well, being a contributor to your tribe, you get out of your own way in that moment. You go, how dare I paint myself into a corner and say, I'll just figure this out, even though I've been struggling with this for four years. How dare you do that? You're not on the path. If you're on that path and you really want to be a contributor to your tribe, you've got to get what you need to be able to do that sustainably. And a big part of that is self-care, dealing with your emotions, getting outside help and encouragement. We all need that. We are human beings. And I was taught we're more like bees and ants than we are like eagles. We need each other. We're better when we're with each other. And we actually are, when we are doing solo ops, we're actually violating the laws of nature. You know, we're neurologically hardwired for connection and we can either leverage that and be better for it, or we can ignore it and suffer for it. Well, I think there's no better illustration than the crippling depression that people feel, for example, in New York City, when they're surrounded by millions of people. If you're not actually part of something, if you don't have that purpose and that that sense of service, you can be surrounded by humans, but it doesn't mean that you're connected. And I think that's where, you know, so many people struggle when they transition out of the military or first responder professions is, yeah, you might go back into your subdivision. You might be in the local supermarket. You're surrounded by people, but you're not connected. You're not, you know, you're not, you don't need them and they don't need you. And I think that's the thing is if you don't find that ideally before you transition out, that's when you get that sense of loss and you reverse engineer to, you know, a Native American tribe. If you, they just kind of rode off and then one day you're looking around the plane going, uh, where is everyone? Imagine the crippling anxiety that must create. Like you're vulnerable. You've lost the very people that that's your whole universe at that point. That's, that's no it. different than yeah. leaving the military or the fire service. And you talk about jacking your stress up. You know, the worst punishment you could have back then was exile, you know, because you were going to die because it's not a Hollywood movie. You cannot survive on your own for, for a, you know, any more than a short length of time. So that was a death sentence. And that's probably, you know, part of why the anxiety and stress goes up so high when we detach from one tribe and we're trying to build another one. But I, I agree with what you said. We need to do that before we make that transition. And, and a big part of it too is really being focused on our identity, you know, is being clear about that is yes, my, my identity is this in this environment, but my identity, my core identity is still the same. What do I want to do with these talents, assets, education, skills, experience? How do I want to deploy that now into a different service environment? And once we do that, we start to have that connection. But, you know, surrounding ourselves with good people and keeping keeping them there is critically important because it's it's really easy to kind of implode when we feel like we're alone. I mean, we we all need a sense of belonging. We all need connection. Like I said, we're built like that. We're, we're you know, we're social creatures by design. So we can leverage that and we should. 
Absolutely. Well, I think refining that service, like for me doing this, like I joke about this a lot, but there's no shirtless podcast calendar floating around. So the identity of a firefighter was way cooler, but it's still, <laughs> you know, I would argue having more of an impact now. It's the false multiplier, you know, for me in the fire service to take the years that I served, apply them by hopefully asking good questions with all these subject matter experts and then letting the entire planet access that for free. So this is my way of making the world better now. But I still train. I still I yeah. do jujitsu. I do all these things because I'm also a protector in my home. I'm a protector in my community. I'm a mentor in my home and my community. So I think that's the thing we've got to remember as well. Just because you took the uniform off doesn't mean that you don't still have a responsibility to take care of the people that you live with and amongst. That's it. And your core principles are going to stay the same. Your core values are going to stay the same. Um, you're still going to have all those things that make you uniquely and powerfully you and, and the passions that drive the development, the further development of that. It's just asking, how do I want to use this now? In what forum? In what environment? And once we figure that out, it makes the transition a little bit easier. You know, it's never going to be easy because change is hard. You know, it's one thing that we're guaranteed from the moment we draw our first breath till, till our last, but we still struggle with it because, you know, change puts us into a position of discomfort. It triggers fear, you know, because there's always an unknown. And that's the biggest fear we deal with. Um, but it, it, we, there's things that we can do to make it a little bit smoother. And that's, that's an important one. Absolutely. Well, another, I mean, there's, there's several things I still want to pull out from the, the Native American side. I think what I've witnessed in my lifetime is, and I'm just now kind of starting to unpack it, is there is a lot of um, arrogance in our generations. And then they've already, I've almost say it started from the the baby boomer generation and the reason why i think that is you've got parents who were probably closed down from their service overseas they i'm sure there was an overcompensation of i never want my kids to have to go through what i went through so i think that there um you know there, there was a softening of generations from there on in but we've also allowed ancient wisdom to be discarded in the world of science and the world of medicine and the world of you know industrialization of our food etc and now i think there's an awakening again finally where oh acupuncture actually works you know oh you know growing your own vegetables without chemicals on them is actually a good thing you know oh you're not a hippie oh okay yeah. um you know so it's it's ridiculous when you look at it but i mean it really was yeah. a lot of arrogance kind of post-world war ii that, that created but another thing that i've seen happen and I don't know if this was pre-World War II or not, but in Western culture, there's almost an element of the elderly being a nuisance. Whereas mm -hmm. you look at more kind of indigenous cultures, the elders were revered as wise. You know, not all of yes. them. I'm sure there were some complete ding-dongs that, you know, were just old. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, you had that, that village elder, that tribe elder. So through yes. your perspective, talk to me about elders in the native american community and what has kind of shifted what have we lost maybe in some of the non-tribal elements in in modern society outside for example native american culture yeah great question um and no when we still honor our elders that's one of the things that uh, I, another point of pride you know that i have in in our tribal cultures is we honor our elders for what they are you know, walking treasure chests of knowledge, information, and wisdom. Um, you know, it's, it's basically the lens that you look at people through uh, will define their utility. 
you know, and in today's society, we look at as you get older, you're weaker, you're not as fast, you're not as sharp, you know, and what we discount because we're judging it from that physicality part because we live in the Instagram universe now, you know, our best life all the time. And if you're not, if you're not killing it, you're, you suck. You know, it's like that, that's so binary view of the world, which is totally unrealistic, but unfortunately, a lot of people are buying into that. But what you get is, yeah, we we slow down physically, we we degrade. That's the natural course of human life. But what gets discounted is all the things that have been accumulated in a lifetime of experience and learning, you know, that that wisdom, that true. And that's how we look at our elders in our tribal communities. Being an elder was a, a path with purpose. It wasn't just about getting older. Elders put themselves on a path to gather as much information as they could so that they could share it with the people in their tribe so everybody would benefit. They didn't gather information, knowledge, wisdom, learning to hoard it, to keep it to themselves, to use it as a weapon or a tool to manipulate somebody else. They gathered that so they could freely share it with other people, you know, to mentor them, to instruct them, to guide them along. And that's one of the things that I think gets forgotten, you know, is, is we still in our tribal communities, that's, you know, we honor our elders, you know, that's everywhere I go. That's a reality. And I, and I love that because we're really, you know, they've, you look at the experiences that they have. And I think we we've gotten into this mode where we've discounted wisdom because we want the, you know, the faster, you know, faster and more doesn't make it better. You know, we live in a society where it's like, go, 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 go. And we forget some of these timeless ideas. I mean, traditional wisdom is so powerful because it's these seemingly simple ideas that have a big impact in our life. And, you know, simple it can be powerful and the fundamentals are still fundamental. And when we drift away from those things, I think that's where we really struggle as people. But yeah, we, we honor our elders because they've earned it. You know, they're on a path that, um, you know, they, they put themselves there to develop and grow so they could benefit somebody else. You know, getting older is automatic. Getting better is by design. And that's what our elders do on purpose. So staying kind of on that theme then, one of my favorite parts of um, Tribe is Sebastian Junger talks about, I think it was the Iroquois, and they had a leader for war, and then they had a leader for peace. And I love that idea because, again, is that the same person? Probably not. With all these different tribes that you've been exposed to now, to kind of to set the the background, I my perspective on the way that we have operate in the UK, the way certainly we operate here in America, is we keep getting the same kind of human being because our system is set up to, to create that. a certain person. Yeah. It's not a great leader. It's not someone with great ethics. It's a millionaire who you know will basically take handouts to get to that position. So I would argue probably not the best member of the community to have at the top, left or right, same person, different tie. So with all these different leaderships and dynamics that you've been exposed to, what were some that struck you that would would maybe be a better way of selecting true leaders for outside the Native American or I mean, rephrase that. I mean, just the U S in general, all of us included. Oh, this could be a podcast by itself, James. Let's that's, go. A, that's, <laughs> that's a powerful question. No, I, that was one of the things that I, I go back to over and over again is looking at the way that leadership was done in our tribal communities was based on service to the people. 
It was based on, you know, not only your deeds, but also your humility. You know, as somebody who was willing to hear other people's points of view, leadership was by consensus, you know, in, in so many tribes. It was basically you followed the people that you trusted that earned that trust. It wasn't a popularity contest. It was about people watching how people behaved and then decided to cast their lot with these folks. It wasn't leadership. And we see so much toxicity in leadership today. It's just, it's, it's cringeworthy. But the good news is we can learn from it. And it, what we learn is what not to be in a leadership position. Um, you know, leadership now, it seems like, is the loudest voice in the room. You know, who can bludgeon the other one quick, quicker, you know, with their ideas than the person that they're they're facing off with. It's just, you know, leadership by stepping on somebody to get ahead. I mean, there's a lot of these things and they're being rewarded. That's the problem. Um, you know, it, it gets all the attention. It triggers that that mentality where that group gets all fired up and frenzied over this person that's saying ridiculous, hateful pain, you know, <laughs> really uh, nasty stuff about somebody else. And people are glomming onto that. You know, I think there's just people that learn how to channel the pissed offedness in the world, you know, are, are the ones who seems to be, seem to be rising in ranks. But, you know, I think that there's an aspect of that. And we were talking about this earlier that, that is being left out of leadership now and it's benevolence and leadership. It's coming from a place of good intention. And of course, life, life and leadership is more than intentions, but for crying out loud, it's actually at least got to start there from a good place. You know, of course it comes down to action, but if it's not coming from a good place, the action isn't going to be good either. So having a benevolence where you're actually, you know, you have care, concern, compassion for the people you lead that you're not putting yourself above them, that there's a level of humility in the role that you play as a leader, you're a servant. I mean, and that's the way we always looked at it in our tribal cultures is that's what the leadership was all about. And it wasn't based on, you know, the money that you had or the connections or how much airtime you had. It was based on, you know, like I said, people watching you in the environment and seeing how you rolled. How, how did you behave? How did you treat elders? How did you treat, treat children? What did you do to defend your people, to help them survive another year? That's what leadership was based on. You know, it's uh, acts of service and character. And I hope we can go back to that at some point. How many tribes do you think when a leader was had risen, risen to the, the ranks, or maybe there was two that they kept going every four years, was well, the lesser of two evils? Oh, gosh, it's a, I, I don't know. But I, I think that every time we have a choice between leaders, it's like that now. Yeah, I think it's every time 340 really million people. And that doesn't yeah. tell you that our system is broken. And we go, these are the two we have to choose from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough. And that's it's getting more and more um, hard to swallow, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think we had that issue in our tribal communities i don't you know and, and even today we have elections you know in our tribes we have tribal council elections and there's always any contention but we run a system now that's different and it's more based on you know the way that the u.s government is set up than the way you know than what it was traditionally you know but um so there is elections involved and campaigns and things like that which uh but still for for the most part having that you know people-centered leadership model is still the most important thing 
Now, we've talked about combat a little bit and, you know, the concept of the warrior as far as, you know, when we do have to actually fight or protect. Yeah. One of the things that I find very hard to kind of come to terms with is the fact that when we're at war, certain groups make a huge amount of money, the industrial military complex. And, of course, when you absolutely have to go and your hands are tied, then we need to go all in. There's no question about that. But where is the checks and balances as far as constantly finding new wars because a lot of people are making a lot of money with the, these cultures again that you've been exposed to and maybe the you know the Iroquois example is is one what was the philosophy towards war and therefore towards avoiding war yeah that's a great question too I mean there's a lot to be learned there because the, the way that wars were even fought was so different you know it was done to you know, basically induct a next generation of warriors. It was, you know, it was to raid other people's resources, to, to get some for yourself. It was to defend hunting areas, but it wasn't about decimation. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't total war. And that's one of the things that tribal communities got exposed to and didn't learn that lesson uh, fast enough that this was going to be something that uh, was a completely different mindset and mentality towards the combat experience. It wasn't about, you know, taking somebody's resources, taking some of their resources. It was taking all of their resources. It was decimating a village. It was decimating a culture. And that was a very different way to, to fight. Um, wars were uh, high risk. So they went into it. There was a lot of debates before, you know, they engaged in combat with another tribe or another group uh, because there was, you know, real cost. Uh, to doing that. And, you know, you have family members that, you know, er everybody's tied tight in those communities. So there's, that's a real world sacrifice. Everybody knew everybody else. And so there's less of a hesitancy to just throw in and go do something that was reckless or overly daring. You, you, you did it because you needed to, you did it because, you know, you were trying to stave off somebody's encroachment into your area that was vital for your survival but it wasn't about wiping out another group of people. So it was a different mentality for warfare for our people. Now, what about from the health and wellness side? I mean, as you said, there are, there are people now from native tribes, maybe on reservations that aren't very healthy, that are struggling with addiction. But when you look back at the more ancient way of living, what are some of the things that you saw maybe was a common denominator that created health and longevity within some of these populations that, again, that we've lost with this kind of modern medicine arrogance that we find ourselves amongst? Yeah, that's a, uh, another great question. It, a lot of it was just the lifestyle. You know, everybody was spent time outdoors. Everybody, you know, uh, engaged in exercise, physical exercise, you know, which is good not just for the body, but for the mind, too. Uh, there was community engagement, which is huge. Everybody had, you know, sense of belonging, sense of, of community, sense of purpose. There was also, you know, ceremonies, you know, the, the cultural practices that bonded people even tighter. So there was a lot, and not even to mention the traditional diets were so much different than the way we eat now. And that's why diabetes is epidemic in our native communities, because we never adjusted, you know, the way that we used to eat was, you know, vegetable based and then some meat and the, the meat was lean, but it was all whole foods. It was all stuff that was in our own backyards that we could gather, forage or grow or, or hunt and, 
or, or fish. And so it was all whole foods and it, and it made a huge difference when you combine, you know, a healthy diet with a healthy lifestyle, um, with a healthy mentality, with a healthy spirituality, you're going to create people who are built to last. And we did, but the way that we eat now, we didn't adjust to, you know, white sugar, white flour, um, you know, Dr. Pepper bags of chips, you know, these are things that it, it hits our body differently and we were not able to, to process quite the same way. But I, I did see a documentary. There was a guy from, I think it was from Pine Ridge or Rosebud. He was a Lakota Sioux member and he went back to a traditional diet. So he ate like the natural foods that were in the environment, buffalo. And I mean, he it, weight just fell off of him. His blood sugars went down. And so it's a, yeah, that's one of the things that what's old is new again. We're going, you'd mentioned we're going back to these old practices and um, there's an indigenous chef and I can't remember his name. His first name is Sean. Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look this up, but he's bringing back some of these traditional native ingredients and native dishes. Um, and he, he's really popular now and he's got, he's got a couple books out, but you know, what's old is new again, whether it's the way that we eat, um, our, our mental wellness, uh, the way that we farm the land, the way that we manage our resources. I mean, there's so many things now that scientists and engineers are coming back going, oh, this has been around for a long time and we thought we could do it better, you know, and now they're going back to these, these practices. And, you know, I think that not only are they as relevant as they ever have been, I think they're more needed now than they ever have been. So I'm glad to see that transition going. What's old is new again. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the thing in a lot of these conversations. It's just the answer to so many things are do what your grand great great grandparents did like a hundred years ago. Move yeah. like we did, be outside like we did, eat like we did, hydrate like we did. I mean, all these things, you know, and now this is what drives me crazy is the biohacks. Oh, you know, if you wear this watch and you do that. No, no, just reverse engineer. Like, you yeah, know, maybe turn off the, the almost all the lights in your house. So when the sun goes down, you get sleepy. You know, I mean, just yeah. it's it's so basic, <laughs> but it's but hard. We're always trying to hack everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you can't make money out of the sun setting. You can't make money out of just drinking water, you know, especially if you've got a, yeah. a water source where you are. And this is the problem is that people want to monetize everything. And that has created the ill health. And as you mentioned, every product that you listed from Dr. Pepper to Chips are things that people have made that have bagged and then put in a shop and you've gone and bought. Whereas yeah. you can hydrate with water, you can, you know, grow your own potatoes and make your own blooming, you know, chips at home if you want to. And they'll still be, you know, a lot better than the ones that you go buy. So, but the reality is we had the solution up until the industrialization of our food. And now yeah. we're seeing, you know, again, we talked about the few affecting the many how many people work in soda companies, cigarette companies, you know, processed foods, hydrogenated oils, all these large corporations, a few people at the top are getting very, very rich while cemeteries are swelling of the people, you know, dying from their products. Right. And that's never a conversation. Yeah. And that's, and that's a reality. I mean, we, our food has gone from, you know, you take something simple like an apple, you know, that uh, there's not a lot of teamwork involved in growing an apple. I mean, the farmers there and, you know, taking care of the trees, obviously, but it's like a team effort with all these processed foods. Everybody's got a lobby. Everybody's trying to jam their ingredient into it. The stuff that you can't pronounce, it's on the back of a bag. Plus corn syrup, they try to put in damn near everything. I mean, you read the ingredients, it's in everywhere because you've got these, you know, 
subsidized products that are going into these things that aren't needed for our bodies, but they're needed to, to make somebody some money. And, you know, and, and even the way that we farm, you know, the monoculture, you know, where you just have acres and acres of one crop and it takes a ton of fertilizer and it's all dumping into the Mississippi and it goes out into the Gulf. And we've got a dead zone the size of New Jersey now out in the Gulf of Mexico because all this crap that gets washed into the tributaries and down the Mississippi, um, it's unsustainable. You know, you look at like the three sisters garden that we used to grow in our tribes. You take beans, squash, and corn, and you grow those together. They take care of each other. They balance the environment. They, what one takes out of the soil, the other two are putting back in. And even with things like fertilizer, you use a lot less of that when you have diversity with your crop, you know, planting than you do if you're just doing one crop and, you know, and then fertilizing the crap out of it. So there, there's a lot of these old practices now that people are going back to or, you know, are revisiting and they're finding that, you know, the way that we're doing it now is destroying the soil and the way that we did it before actually enriched it. So it's just, you know, again, it's, these are powerful forces we're talking about, you know, these big mega corporations and there's a lot of money at stake and everybody's got their hand in the, you know, in the, in the kitty. And it's really tough to combat that, you know, but we have to do that individually uh, again, you know, make better choices for how we handle our health, what we eat, um, how we roll, how we take care of ourselves, how we treat other people that's in our power. You know, there's a lot of things outside of our power, but we don't have to participate in all of it. Absolutely. Vote with your dollar. So yeah, I, I exactly. want to get, I want to get to the book. One more question. I heard you talking to, I think it was Mike Sorelli on, on the podcast you did with him. Um, when it comes to the mental health side, when we had, for example, COVID, everything that people were told to do was the polar opposite of what would actually improve physical, mental health and immunity. So they shut the parks, the beaches, the, the gyms and all that stuff. And then you could get fast food and alcohol delivered to your house. Right. Um, so, you know, it just took, I think that's just end capping our conversation of how ridiculous, you know, wellness information from the government is and that you do need to just look at more ancient wisdom. But also the application of the ceremonies, the, um, yeah, the, the community, the tribalism on mental health. Now, yes, there are some reservations, as we talked about, that are struggling, that have got addiction. And there's that, again, multi-generational trauma going on there. Mm -hmm. But talk to me about that homecoming element to the modern warrior. And what can we learn from some of the, these native cultures on the mental health crisis that we're going through at the moment? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, as we, as we mentioned, when they come back from, from combat, or from deployments, you know, having those ceremonies to release that toxin, you know, out of their system from the trauma that they experienced, but also our, our regular ceremonies, like going to things like sweat lodge. I mean, it's like it, we do that during that time as well on a regular basis so that we're keeping ourselves free of the accumulated junk that we gather, the negative stuff, the setbacks, the loss, the pain, the disappointment. And we, we purge that on a regular basis. And that's part of ongoing, continual mental and spiritual wellness and emotional wellness so that we're not suppressing it. We're not storing it away. And the more that we can do that, the, the better we are, you know, the more balanced we are. Because the problem is, you know, the way that we look at medicine in our tribal communities is different than modern society. 
you know, when I say medicine, what usually gets brought up is a pill or a vaccine because that's what, how we're programmed. But in our tribal communities, medicine is is different. It's not just something we seek out when we're sick or out of balance. It's something we incorporate into our lives on a daily basis to keep us strong and healthy. And by the way, medicine is not just a pill or a vaccine. It's anything and everything that keeps us strong, mind, body, and spirit. Um, anything can qualify. It could be taking walks. It could be you know, eating healthy food. It could be hanging out with friends, watching comedies, taking a vacation, going on a hike, a spa day, comfort food. Anything and everything can qualify as medicine as long as it fits that description. Um, you know, my people, we call medicine mushkeke. It comes from two words. Mushke means strength that you gather. And then the second word, ke, means earth. So strength that you gather from the earth. And, and again, it's up to us to make sure that we're providing what we need for ourselves as far as medicine goes, because that's a key to our mental wellness. I mean, we live in a crazy, mixed up, chaotic world where the speed of life is the speed of light. And if, you know, we have... Uh, even terms now like FOMO, fear of missing out. My God, who had ever thought that would be a, a thing? You know, we're 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 so scared to miss out on something that we actually end up missing out on everything. You know, and that is a key to throwing ourselves off the deep end when it comes to mental wellness. We can't do it all. We're not supposed to. You know, the game of life and and building a good career is not just learning what to say yes to; it's knowing what to say no to what to offload, what to dump, what to say, this is not freaking worth my time or energy. I mean, that's a big part of mental wellness is, is making sure that we're not overextending ourselves the way that we do on a daily basis. And we feel it. I mean, when we feel like too little peanut butter on too much toast, we know that we're trying to put too much, you know, on our journey uh, to deal with. And it's, when we do that, we're doing the worst thing a warrior can do in battle. We're dividing and conquering ourselves. So mental wellness is knowing how to protect yourself, getting what you need, saying no to things that don't add to the bottom line, hanging out with people that inspire us, empower us, hold us to a higher standard and keep us accountable, but people who have our back and we feel it, you know, that we have trusted, trusted supportive elements in our arena, um, you know, and maybe not do social media so much. Maybe you don't watch the news so much. Maybe, I mean, these are things that we feel obligated, like we're missing out again on something that isn't really adding anything to the bottom line of the quality of our life. We think it is. We're told it is. But how do you feel when you spend three hours on social media? I Personally, don't. I don't feel great. No, no <laughs> you know? I, I mean, I try and avoid it. Which is why I, I don't do it. <laughs> I unplugged cable, God, I think it was like 11, 12 years ago, and a long, long time after my son yeah. started quoting uh, QVC commercials that were between the children's shows. I was like, all right, we're oh done. We are done. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, the news is horrendous. I mean, let me guess. Another politician shitbag is going to court. Okay, yeah, got it. You know, you could that, that's what I'm saying. It's like, is that, yeah, what is that adding to? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I try to spend my time doing things that are productive, you know, trying to be a, you know, serve the people that I serve well. I try to take care of my body. I try to watch what I eat. I, you know, constantly reading. Uh, I also make time to be in total solitude. I make time to meditate. I make time to have that quiet time to let the dirt settle in my mud puddle. And, you know, you do a handful of basic things on a daily basis. Not only do you feel better, but you are better. You're more productive. You're feel more fulfilled, you're a lot happier, and you're a hell of a lot more balanced. 
So it's it's a matter, and it takes discipline to do that, to say, this isn't worth my time, even though everybody's telling me, oh, you ought to. Yeah, how many of those conversations? Oh, you got to download this. You got to listen to that. You got to watch this. It's like, do I? You know, I mean, we have to be our own, you know, best protector and uh, guide. So we listen to that. I think we make better decisions. Absolutely. Well, you talked about yeah, medicine from the earth. Yeah. There's there's a lot of very natural things that I use. I mean, sleep is huge, especially coming out of the fire service. I love being outside, nature, sunlight, etc. But another thing that I've found extremely useful recently is um, CBD, so hemp. So another yeah. plant that was vilified for so long and now all of a sudden we're realizing, oh, actually, it's really good for you and better than opiates because you don't die. Um, are there any any things that you've come across from Native American culture that's kind of like a, a similar thing that, that maybe most people don't know about because modern medicine has kind of been the white noise, but maybe is another healing element plant that, you know, maybe will be another ancient wisdom solution to some of the modern problems? You know, one of the things I think about, well, I, you know, I have sage and sweet grass that I burn, you know, on a daily basis for with prayer, because it's a cleansing, you know, uh, practice, um, it gets my head clear, you know, sweeps away negativity. It's it's one of the things that I go back to time and time again. And we still use that in our tribal communities. I love going to native conferences because we start off that way, you know, which is super cool. But, you know, there there's a lot of things that are are simple medicines that don't require big pharma. Uh, you know, they don't require a prescription, you know, and that's one of the things that I, I remember this, this time where my uncle, uh, Tony, who since passed away, loved him with all my heart, but he had diabetes and my spiritual leader, Celo Black Crow, who was my Sundance leader as well. We were out together and he harvested these cedar berries from a cedar tree. These little tiny, looked like little tiny blueberries. And he ground those up and made this paste that he gave to my uncle Tony to put into a tea that he drank two or three times a day. And, and I don't recommend this as a prescription because I don't know the dosages or any, you know, uh, but what I do know is that he, he did this and his blood sugar his numbers dropped significantly. Like the next checkup he had with his doctor, his doctor was freaked out. He said, what, what is happening? What are you doing? And it was simply, he was drinking this, this tea and it lowered his blood, you know, his blood sugars. And that was one of the things too, that, you know, of course, nobody makes money on that, you know, and there's a lot of those traditional medicines in our tribal communities that, are still available, but they're just not as promoted unless you're in that community and talk to an elder who knows these things. And there are a lot of them out there, you know, um, then the temptation is to rely on big pharma to, to fix your needs, you know, to, to cure your ills. So it's, it's still out there. I mean, that's one of the things I wish we would have more in the public forum, you know, is have some of our elders combine that, that knowledge, but it's so, you know, it's kind of spread out everywhere. It's not as much of a comprehensive body as it used to be, but there are people out there practicing this stuff actively. Yeah, well, it's important that we don't lose that knowledge too. I think that's a scary thing. I heard uh, Jocko Willink talking about just simply starting a gene company, making genes. And yeah. the realization that there was almost no one in that area that even knew how to use a loom. And because yeah. everything had been exported overseas, it's the same with this. I mean, we have all these natural remedies, all this great knowledge of farming and how you're actually supposed to, you know, rotate the land. 
um, had Joel Salatin on. He does a great job. You know, they they plant, then they they rotate different livestock through, so they're eating and, and foraging and defecating moisture. Uh, excuse me, fertilize the land naturally, and then they get this yeah. incredible growth again. Um, you know, we're going to lose all that if we yeah. allow this to all be suppressed and demonized. So it's so important that we do take that. You know, revisit that knowledge before we lose it completely. Yeah, because once that link is broken, it's hard to recover. You know, we've got we've got some of the folks in our tribal communities that there are no fluent speakers of that language anymore. And once you lose that, it's uh, you can't get it back. You know, so I, I agree. I mean, this stuff needs to be handed out, passed down, shared, um, because we all benefit when we when we know what it is. And that's one of the things that I I love being able to share our native cultures, our native philosophies with other people that are outside of our native communities as well. It's still, you know, 70% of the work I do is still within our tribal communities, but sharing it with the outside, you know, I was taught by my elders, if if we have ideas that work for us, it's not only okay to be able to share it with other people, but we have an obligation to, you know, we're all creatures on this planet. We're all part of the same race, the human race. And if we have ideas that can benefit anyone, we should be able to share that with everyone. Absolutely. Well, speaking of sharing knowledge, as a good segue again. You have three books, The Tiny Warrior, Spirit on the Run, and then your latest book, The Warrior Within. So if you want to just kind of give an overview of each of the books for people listening. Sure. Um, appreciate that. The, the Tiny Warrior was my first book. It's a small book. It's written as a parable. Uh, became a bestseller. Uh, it's printed in six countries now. I call it the little book that could. And so, but that's basically a, a story about a a young man who's not where he wants to be in life, feels like he made some bad decisions, settled for second best too many times. And he sits down with his grandfather to ask for help. His grandfather starts telling him the story of a little native kid who lived hundreds of years ago. And of course, at the beginning, Justin, the, the main character is cynical. You know, he's in his late twenties. He said, ah, these are kids stories. They don't apply to me. And by the way, this traditional wisdom stuff doesn't work anymore. We live in the space age, the age of genetics. And he found or he finds he's not, you know, right on both of those counts. And so that's what that story is all about. The second book spirit on the run is a, actually an inspirational novel uh, about going through difficult times in our life. And, and it's a it's story on, on its own, but it's about going through difficult times and coming through better than we thought we could be. And so it's kind of a, a spiritual family action drama type type book. Um, but that was my second. And then my third, the warrior within, uh, came out last year through penguin random house, um, available wherever books are sold, including the audio version. I recorded the whole thing. So if you're too busy to read it, I'll read the whole thing for you. Uh, but that's basically a distillation of the last 25 years of my work, um, sharing these principles on how to stay resilient, strong, uh, exercise courage in our leadership. Uh, in our daily lives, um, appreciating, you know, how important it is to build the right environment for success, uh, all different components in in this book. So it's, uh, and, I, and I use a lot of stories from other people. That's why this one in particular was a lot of fun to write because I used real world examples of people actually using these principles and getting good effect, whether it's educators, people in healthcare, people in the military, um, first responders, uh, there's a lot of different walks of life that meet together in this book, but it's, it's, uh, that's what the book is about using, you know, showing people how to use our traditional native American warrior principles to get better results in life, leadership and service to others. 
Beautiful. And where can people find the books? Anywhere you buy them. Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Google, uh, wherever you, you get your books, um, it, it's available. So The Warrior Within, Penguin Random House. Brilliant. And then the uh, documentary on Native American history in modern military is The Warrior Within. Is that right? No, the Warrior Tradition. Uh, the Warrior Tradition. Uh -huh. And then Discovering Your Warrior Spirit is the, the talk that you do on PBS. That's it. Yeah. The, uh, Discovering Your Warrior Spirit was an incredible opportunity that came from the Warrior Tradition. I was one of 16 people that made it into that documentary. And when it was done, they pulled me aside and uh, we had a conversation about exploring doing doing my own uh, special for PBS. And so it was an incredible opportunity. It was a lot of work. Um, and uh, yeah, that's available on PBS.org. And, uh, and they still are airing it on PBS stations around the country. Brilliant. You can get both on Amazon as well, because that's how I got mine through. So you yes. just, you know, you just pay for that. All right. Well, then some closing questions quickly, if, if you've got time. Yes. Brilliant. Okay. Just want to make sure, because I know we've gone two hours already. <laughs> um, the first one I love to ask, we talked about your books. Are there any other books written by other people that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm a book nut. I always hate these questions because there's so many good ones. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, uh, The Lakota Way by Joseph Marshall III, um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown, uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, uh, 1491 by Charles Mann. Oh my gosh, I got a whole bookshelf in the next room filled with <laughs> so many but th those are the ones that are right off the top of my head but i i anything by Brene brown i love um you know as far as uh writing as buying deloria jr was a great iconic groundbreaking native author wrote about politics and and uh, native history in this country um now there's so many good books i i just those are the ones off the top of my head that i would Beautiful. Out there. I've actually got Bury My Heart a Wounded Knee. It's a beat up old coffee. I think I bought it in a second hand shop years ago and I still haven't read it yet. So I'll take this. I'm actually writing a, my second book at the moment, so I'm not reading at the second, but I'll make sure that, that that's the first one I get to when, uh, when I'm done. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a great one. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many i'm a movie nut um uh, i'm trying to think of some of the the better ones uh obviously i mean black robe is one that shows uh the experience with jesuit priests who come to north america and interact with tribal communities in the northeast like in, in kind of our neck of the woods from my tribe um gosh movies like I mean, I love the the epic action adventure hero movies. I mean, it's it's one of the things that I've always been a sucker for, even as a kid. Is like, you know, what kind of impact do you want to leave in this world? Who do you want to help? What are you willing to fight for? But movies like Gladiator, Avatar, um, I, I I love those. Documentary. I I like uh, the documentary Biggest Little Farm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I haven't seen that one. No, that's going back to uh, farming the land and and making it healthy again. And I thought that was fascinating. And 
Oh my gosh. And I watch documentaries all the time. Oh, I'm drawing a blank, James. It's like I got a log jam in my head. <laughs> no, Biggest Little Farm is, is perfect. We can stick with that one. Okay. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Have you had Kevin Basic on your podcast? So, yes, I perfect. will be having him on. It was supposed to be before we had this conversation, but it's tomorrow. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, you're going to love him. I've known him since I was 17 years old. Oh, really? We go way back. Yeah. And he was, uh, yeah, because we were going through basic training together at the academy and then four years at the academy. But, yeah, he's become a, a you know, obviously great friend, great guy. Um, he's hilarious. He's deep. Uh, but the the stuff that you guys are going to, I'm excited for you. Because uh, the conversation, I don't know where it's going to go, but I'd say it's going to be awesome. Uh, but that's who I would recommend. He does his whole idea or his whole focus is behavioral integrity. And uh, he's really good at what he does. He's passionate about what he does. And he's a he's a wonderful person. So Beautiful. Well, I'm excited. I got one to ask you about. This is, I think I've, I'm almost certain I wrote to him a while ago and I didn't get any response. But Peter McDonald the uh, Navajo code talker is he oh, yes is he still you know someone who would be able to do an interview I know he's getting you know older in the years now being World War II vet yeah I'm not sure to tell you the truth because I that's uh yeah he was he was the chairman of the Navajo tribe for a while but yeah code talker World War II but I, I don't know that he's doing public stuff anymore he is getting up there in, in age. So I'm not sure what his status is at this point. Yeah. Okay. Cause that's someone I think would be amazing to, to, you know, learn from. Cause I mean, when they talked about, he was in one of those schools and they talk about it in that documentary and that he was told to never speak Navajo. And then all of a sudden the U S government like, Oh, actually that's going to be we very helpful. Yeah. Come yeah, on, come over exactly. here and speak the very thing that we told you not to speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating story too. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't help you with that one. No, no, no problem at all. All right, well, then the last question before um, we make sure where to find you online, what do you do to decompress? I meditate every morning. Uh, I try to start off my day with clarity instead of trying to recapture it later in the day after I start kicking up dust. Uh, I exercise regularly. I, I think that's important. Like I said, not just a strong body, but a strong mind. Um, I benefit as much mentally as I ever do physically when I exercise. Uh, I love to be outdoors, being outside as medicine. We've been outdoor creatures since the beginning of time. We came indoors to work about a microsecond ago on the time scale, and we wonder why we have all the issues that we have. So spending time outside is hugely beneficial. Um, making sure that I do things that are fun for fun's sake. Uh, I try to foster joy in my life with the people I spend time with and the activities I pursue. And uh, the other one is make sure that you get a good night's sleep every night. Carve that time out, fight for it, defend it. There will always be something to t try to take a bite out of it. But that is the foundation for a balanced, healthy, effective life. Um, you know, when we try to go out into the world and we're trying to give 100% of who we are and what we can do on a half-charged battery or less, that's like planting carrot seeds and hoping coconuts grow. That's a complete disconnect from reality. And we're the only ones who can change that. But it's it's huge, and they're doing big bodies of science now on the benefits of simply getting a good getting a good night's sleep, and it's uh, it's free. Yeah, well, that's what I'm fighting for for my profession because they 
sleep less than most people yet they're the ones that we call when we're having our worst day and it's insanity so we need to give those men and women a lot more time between their shifts so they can recover i agree yeah we want somebody to deliver 100 percent of who they are and they're defending somebody else's life or protecting it we want them to be at their best and yeah sleep is critically important in that absolutely all right well then people listening if they want to find you online or on social media where's the best places uh, website is nativediscovery.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me and all, you know, background, what I do, full of video clips, information on my book. Um, that's the best place to get in touch with me. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, and uh, Facebook is buildingwarriors.com and um, also on Instagram as well. DJ Vanis is my handle there. Beautiful. Well, DJ, I want to say thank you so much. We've gone all over the place. I didn't know where. I knew kind of some things that I wanted to hit, but we've really kind of, you know, stretched the spectrum of topics. It's been amazing. And I think, I don't know if it was yourself or Kevin I was talking to, but I think when when you have groups that aren't usually given as much of a voice when i reach out to them sometimes there's kind of like a resistance to it because they're like okay what's the ulterior motive you know why you know what's the angle here and there isn't so it's it's just been amazing to actually unpack you know this entire topic and hear some of the history and take some of the wisdom from you know you've got this perspective of so many of these cultures that you've immersed yourself in so i want to thank you so much for not only disseminating so much information but being so generous with your time today well, thanks for uh, creating the environment to allow it to happen, James. I appreciate the the opportunity to be here. This conversation has been awesome. Um, really uh, glad to get to know you at least a little bit more in this regard. And I really appreciate it, man. Keep up the great work you're doing. 